Lecture eight, part two of Pragmatism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Pragmatism by William James. Does our act then create the world's salvation so far as it makes room for itself, so far as it leaps into the gap? Does it create not the whole world's salvation, of course, but just so much of this as itself covers of the world's extent? Here I take the bull by the horns, and in spite of the whole crew of rationalists and monists, of whatever brand they be, I ask, why not? Our acts, our turning-places, where we seem to ourselves to make ourselves and grow, are the parts of the world to which we are closest, the parts of which our knowledge is the most intimate and complete. Why should we not take them at their face value? Why may they not be the actual turning-places and growing-places which they seem to be of the world? Why not the workshop of being, where we catch fact in the making, so that nowhere may the world grow in any other kind of way than this? Irrational, we are told. How can new being come in local spots and patches which add themselves or stay away at random, independently of the rest? There must be a reason for our acts, and where in the last resort can any reason be looked for save in the material pressure or the logical compulsion of the total nature of the world? There can be but one real agent of growth, or seeming growth, anywhere, and that agent is the integral world itself. It may grow all over, if growth there be, but that single parts should grow per se is irrational. But if one talks of rationality and of reasons for things, and insists that they can't just come in spots, what kind of a reason can there ultimately be why anything should come at all? Talk of the logic and necessity and categories and the absolute and the contents of the whole philosophical machine, shop as you will, the only real reason I can think of why anything should ever come is that someone wishes it to be here. It is demanded, demanded it may be, to give relief to no matter how small a fraction of the world's mass. This is living reason, and compared with it, material causes and logical necessities are spectral things. In short, the only fully rational world would be the world of wishing caps, the world of telepathy, where every desire is fulfilled instanter, without having to consider or placate surrounding or intermediate powers. This is the Absolute's own world. He calls upon the phenomenal world to be, and it is, exactly as he calls for it, no other condition being required. In our world, the wishes of the individual are only one condition. Other individuals are there with other wishes, and they must be propitiated first. So being grows under all sorts of resistances in this world of the many, and from compromise to compromise only gets organized gradually into what may be called secondarily rational shape. We approach the wishing-cap type of organization only in a few departments of life. We want water, and we turn to a faucet. We want a Kodak picture, and we press a button. We want information, and we telephone. We want to travel, and we buy a ticket. 
In these and similar cases we hardly need to do more than the wishing. The world is rationally organized to do the rest. But this talk of rationality is a parenthesis and a digression. What we were discussing was the idea of a world growing not integrally but piecemeal by the contributions of its several parts. Take the hypothesis seriously and as a live one. Suppose that the world's author put the case to you before creation, saying, I am going to make a world not certain to be saved, a world the perfection of which shall be conditional merely, the condition being that each several agent does its own level best. I offer you the chance of taking part in such a world. Its safety, you see, is unwarranted. It is a real adventure, with real danger, yet it may win through. It is a social scheme of cooperative work genuinely to be done. Will you join the procession? Will you trust yourself and trust the other agents enough to face the risk? Should you in all seriousness, if participation in such a world were proposed to you, feel bound to reject it as not safe enough? Would you say that, rather than be part and parcel of so fundamentally pluralistic and irrational a universe, you preferred to relapse into the slumber of non-intentity from which you had been momentarily aroused from the tempter's voice? Of course, if you are normally constituted, you would do nothing of the sort. There is a healthy-minded buoyancy in most of us which such a universe would exactly fit. We would therefore accept the offer, top, unschlag, aufschlag. It would be just like the world we practically live in, and loyalty to our old nurse nature would forbid us to say no. The world proposed would seem rational to us in the most living way. Most of us, I say, would therefore welcome the proposition and add our fiat to the fiat of the Creator. Yet perhaps some would not, for there are morbid minds in every human collection, and to them the prospect of a universe with only a fighting chance of safety would probably make no appeal. There are moments of discouragement in us all, when we are sick of self and tired of vainly striving. Our own life breaks down, and we fall into the attitude of the prodigal son. We mistrust the chances of things. We want a universe where we can just give up, fall on our father's neck, and be absorbed into the absolute life as a drop of water melts into the river or the sea. The peace and rest, the security desiderated at such moments, is security against the bewildering accidents of so much finite experience. Nirvana means safety from this everlasting round of adventures of which the world of sense consists. The Hindu and the Buddhist, for this is essentially their attitude, are simply afraid, afraid of more experience, afraid of life. And to men of this complexion, religious monism comes with its consoling words. All is needed and essential, even you with your sick soul and heart. All are one with God, and with God all is well. The everlasting arms are beneath, whether in the world of finite appearances you seem to fail or to succeed. There can be no doubt that when men are reduced to their last sick extremity, absolutism is the only saving scheme. 
pluralistic moralism simply makes their teeth chatter it refrigerates the very heart within their beast so we see concretely two types of religion in sharp contrast using our old terms of comparison we may say that the absolutistic scheme appeals to the tender-minded while the pluralistic scheme appeals to the tough many persons would refuse to call the pluralistic scheme religious at all they would call it moralistic and would apply the word religious to the monistic scheme alone religion in the sense of self-surrender and moralism in the sense of self-sufficingness have been pitted against each other as incompatibles frequently enough in the history of human thought we stand here before the final question of philosophy i said in my fourth lecture that i believe the monistic pluralistic alternative to be the deepest and most pregnant question that our minds can frame can it be that the disjunction is a final one that only one side can be true are a pluralism and monism genuine incompatibles so that if the world were really pluralistically constituted if it really existed distributively and were made up of a lot of eaches it could only be saved piecemeal and de facto as the result of their behavior and its epic history in no wise short-circuited by some essential oneness in which the severalness were already taken up beforehand and eternally overcome if this were so we should have to choose one philosophy or the other we could not say yes yes to both alternatives there would have to be a no in our relations with the possible we should confess an ultimate disappointment we could not remain healthy-minded and sick-minded in one indivisible act of course as human beings we can be healthy minds on one day and sick souls on the next and as amateur dabblers in philosophy we may perhaps be allowed to call ourselves monistic pluralists or free-will determinists or whatever else may occur to us as a reconciling kind but as philosophers aiming at clearness and consistency and feeling the pragmatistic need of squaring truth with truth the questions forced upon us of frankly adopting either the tender or the robustious type of thought in particular this query has always come home to me may not the claims of tender-mindedness go too far may not the notion of a world already saved in toto anyhow be too saccharine to stand may not religious optimism be too idyllic must all be saved is no price to be paid in the work of salvation is the last word sweet is all yes yes in the universe doesn't the fact of no stand at the very core of life doesn't the very seriousness that we attribute to life mean that ineluctable no's and losses form a part of it that there are genuine sacrifices somewhere and that something permanently drastic and bitter always remains at the bottom of its cup i can not speak officially as a pragmatist here all i can say is that my own pragmatism offers no objection to my taking sides with this more moralistic view and giving up the claim of a total reconciliation 
The possibility of this is involved in the pragmatistic willingness to treat pluralism as a serious hypothesis. In the end it is our faith and not our logic that decides such questions, and I deny the right of any pretended logic to veto my own faith. I find myself willing to take the universe to be really dangerous and adventurous without therefore backing out and crying no play. I am willing to think that the prodigal sun attitude, open to us as it is in many vicissitudes, is not the right and final attitude towards the whole of life. I am willing that there should be real losses and real losers and no total preservation of all that is. I can believe in the ideal as an ultimate, not as an origin, and as an extract, not the whole. When the cup is poured off, the dregs are left behind forever, but the possibility of what is poured off is sweet enough to accept. As a matter of fact, countless human imaginations live in this moralistic and epic kind of a universe, and find its disseminated and strung along successes sufficient for their rational needs. There is a finely translated epigram in the Greek anthology which admirably expresses this state of mind, this acceptance of loss as unatoned for, even though the lost element might be one's self. A shipwrecked sailor, buried on this coast, bids you set sail. Full many a gallant bark, when we were lost, weathered the gale. Those Puritans who answered yes to the question, are you willing to be damned for God's glory, were in this objective and magnanimous condition of mind. The way of escape from evil on this system is not by getting it aufgehoben, or preserved in the whole as an element essential, but overcome. It is by dropping it out altogether, throwing it overboard and getting beyond it, helping to make a universe that shall forget its very place and name. It is then perfectly possible to accept sincerely a drastic kind of a universe from which the element of seriousness is not to be expelled. Whoso does, so is, it seems to me, a genuine pragmatist. He is willing to live on a scheme of uncertified possibilities which he trusts, willing to pay with his own person, if need be, for the realization of the ideals which he frames. What now actually are the other forces which he trusts to cooperate with him in a universe of such a type? They are at least his fellow men, in the stage of being which our actual universe has reached. But are there not superhuman forces also, such as religious men of the pluralistic type we have been considering have always believed in, their words may have sounded monistic when they said, There is no God but God. But the original polytheism of mankind has only imperfectly and vaguely sublimated itself into monotheism. And monotheism itself, so far as it was religious and not a scheme of classroom instruction for the metaphysicians, has always viewed God as but one helper, primus inter pares in the midst of all the shapers of the great world's fate. I fear that my previous lectures, confined as they have been to human and humanistic aspects, 
may have left the impression on many of you that pragmatism means methodically to leave the superhuman out. I have shown small respect indeed for the absolute, and I have until this moment spoken of no other superhuman hypothesis but that. But I trust that you see sufficiently that the absolute has nothing but its superhumanness in common with the theistic God. On pragmatistic principles, if the hypothesis of God works satisfactorily in the widest sense of the word, it is true. Now whatever its residual difficulties may be, experience shows that it certainly does work, and that the problem is to build it out and determine it, so that it would combine satisfactorily with all the other working truths. I cannot start upon a whole theology at the end of this last lecture, but when I tell you that I have written a book on men's religious experience, which on the whole has been regarded as making for the reality of God, you will perhaps exempt my own pragmatism from the charge of being an atheistic system. I firmly disbelieve myself that our human experience is the highest form of experience extant in the universe. I believe rather that we stand in much the same relation to the whole of the universe as our canine and feline pets do to the whole of human life. They inhabit our drawing-rooms and libraries. They take part in scenes of whose significance they have no inkling. They are merely tangent to curves of history, the beginnings and ends and forms of which pass wholly beyond their ken. So we are tangents to the wider life of things, but just as many of the dogs' and cats' ideals coincide with our ideals, and the dogs' and cats have daily living proof of the fact, so we may well believe, on the proofs that religious experience affords, that higher powers exist and are at work to save the world on ideal lines similar to our own. You see that pragmatism can be called religious, if you allow that religion can be pluralistic or merely melioristic in type. But whether you will finally put up with that type of religion or not is a question that only you yourself can decide. Pragmatism has to postpone dogmatic answers, for we do not yet know certainly which type of religion is going to work best in the long run. The various over-beliefs of men, their several faith ventures, are in fact what are needed to bring the evidence in. You will probably make your own ventures severally. If radically tough, the hurly-burly of the sensible facts of nature will be enough for you, and you will need no religion at all. If radically tender, you will take up with the more monistic form of religion, the pluralistic form with its reliance on possibilities that are not necessities, will not seem to afford you security enough. But if you are neither tough nor tender in an extreme and radically sense, but mixed as most of us are, it may seem to you that the type of pluralistic and moralistic religion that I have offered is as good a religious synthesis as you are likely to find between the two extreme of crude naturalism on the one hand and transcendental absolutism on the other you may find that what i take the liberty of calling the pragmatistic or melioristic type of theism is exactly what you require 
The End of Pragmatism End of Lecture 8 End of Pragmatism by William James